I'm about to throw you off. We're going to read the sermon text before I give the sermon. Is everybody okay? We're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and then I'll explain where we're going from there. So I wonder if you might stand if you are able. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to start in verse 7. Second Corinthians 3. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If there, if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. That text is full of language and themes and imagery and background that feel very impenetrable on a first reading. I would like to set it up for you to suggest that it actually has a great deal of what to do with what it is that we are all facing here on the last day of 2023, and what might set it up for us a little bit better, a little bit more accessibly, is this moment from Akilah in the B. Akilah is really good at spelling. She even knows how to spell misspell. But she is facing her future with either a mixture of too much casualness or too much fear, and Lawrence Fishburne is here to set her straight. Have you, uh, have you got any goals? Hmm? Goals. What would you like to be when you grow up? A doctor, a lawyer, a stand-up comic? I don't know. The only thing I'm good at is spelling. Go over there and read the quotation that's on the wall. Read it aloud, please. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And as we let our own light shine, 
we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. Does that mean anything to you? I don't know. It's written in plain English. But what does it mean? That I'm not supposed to be afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of... Me? What rescues that scene from it being purely about your empowerment, whatever that word means anymore, is that you can't talk about what it means to live fully unless you appeal to something grander than yourself, namely the glory of God. And you can't think about that unless you imagine, like, what are the goals for that kind of life? Two things happen this time of year, invariably. Resolutions and pastors who preach on the folly of resolutions, right? <laughs> You're used to it. You're probably expecting it, even if you didn't walk in here wondering what's going to happen. I, the, here's the question, though. Whatever resolutions that you might be thinking about, whatever goals that you might have, as, as he is suggesting that Akilah might have, whatever your goals might be, and whatever uh, resolve that sort of evaporates like the morning dew within about two weeks what are you supposed to do with that impulse? Are we supposed to not make goals? Are we supposed to not imagine changes? Are we supposed to, to give up on that? Good luck. You are betraying a fundamental instinct about what it means to be human if you don't at least imagine what would it be like to change. And we collectively, at the end of every year and the beginning of a new one, we just kind of go there. And we either feel great enthusiasm about that or great dread because we look back at what January 1st, 2023 had and we thought, man, I don't think I want to make any more dreams and any more goals because look what I did with that year. What do we do? You and I know we want to change. And we do so badly at it and our motivations for it are problematic. And it's at this time of year that I invariably reach for that moment in Forrest Gump there with Forrest's new friend, there in the bar, where she says, don't you just love New Year's? It's like you get to start all over. She's imagining change for her own life. And you know what I'd like to suggest to you is that in that desire, kind of crudely put there on New Year's Eve, 1994, whenever that film came out, she wants glory. She wants a sense that she is part of something larger than herself and is acknowledged by that something else. And so for the last five weeks, we have given ourselves to one question. What does it mean to have glory? And what are our glory days? We, we appeal to Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, but you and I are caught between two stories as we go, we age. One is from Man of Steel, because we all want to wear capes. When you're young, I am going to be that guy or that girl. And then you get older and then you're like saving Private Ryan there over the graves of his fellow brothers that died for him that he might live. And he looks at his spouse, his wife. Did I live a good life? Was I a good husband? Was I a good father? 
When you're young, you think your glory is always within your reach, and when you're older, you wonder if I missed it. The season of Advent and the glory of God is here to suggest to us that your deepest glory was never within your reach. It's a gift. And your greatest days are not in your past. They are still in your future. We have considered glory in a multiplicity of ways. The glory matters. The glory restores. The glory comforts. On Christmas Eve, we, we suggest to you that glory plays. This morning, I'd like to suggest to you that glory changes us into glory. And we want to know what that means. And for help in understanding Paul there in 2 Corinthians 3, I would like to appeal to an interesting source. His name is Loki. And some of you who are visitors have walked in thinking, wait a minute, I think that sign out there said Grace Church. Maybe I missed it. Maybe it said Norse Church. No, no, you're right. This is Grace Church. But Loki forms a narrative arc and something rather profound for us all on the cusp of a new year. Loki, wherever he goes, early and often in his life, says this one thing, I am burdened with glorious purpose. He says it from the, almost the moment we first hear of him. He's the, he's the adopted brother of Thor. They are both the sons of Odin from Norse mythology. Oh my gosh, where are we? But I am always burdened with glorious purpose. And we all like, what does he mean by that? What is this glorious purpose? And we, we kind of discover along the way that for him, glorious purpose is very self-interested. It's full of egotism. It is full of conniving. It is all about trying to get his own way to seek his own glory. And then along the way, we kind of get a little clarity on what he means by glory. And I would like this to show you a sampling from the early life of Loki to get to the heart of what's animating him. And I promise there's a reason why I am. Loki's always been one for mischief, but you're talking about something else entirely. Stop! Am I cursed? No. What am I? You're my son. What more than that? Uh, I could have done it, Father! I could have done it! For you! For all of us! I know if you don't know that storyline, what just happened? Loki, I would like to suggest to you, represents an impulse that's in all of us, and it's even found in the parable of the two sons that Jesus speaks of in Luke chapter 15. Because in just those several seconds, you heard two, two motivating, animating principles in him. He wants glory. His father says, I'm, you're my son. 
I want something more than that. I don't care. Just like the younger son says, you know what? Can I have my inheritance? I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to seek my own glory. And then what happens to that younger son when he runs out of money and he realizes I'm an idiot? He goes back and makes a speech for his dad saying, you know what? I'll be one of your hired hands. Just let me back in. What's he doing there? He's trying to prove something, his worth to his father, that he might obtain his father's approval. And that's what Loki's doing there at the end of that scene. He is trying to rescue Asgard from all of Asgard's enemies, and it doesn't work. And he looks at his father, and he says, I was going to do this for you, for all of us. And then when that opportunity fails, he literally, you didn't see it, he, he lets go, and he falls into an abyss of despair. Look, Marvel makes a lot of money, but they tell stories that resonate with something more than just uh, teenagers that like superhero stories. Loki, in that moment, in those moments, represents an entire way of being, an entire way of motivation that you and I have familiarity with, even if we've never thought about it. Some things motivate you. I don't care about my father's will. I know what I want. I know what I want. I know what will make me happy. Forget about what God wants. I don't care. I'm going to do it. Or you think, if I could just do this for the Lord, then I will have his approval. You may not be aware of it. I'm a lot of the times not aware of it in me, but that way lives. And it's a whole way of change. It's a whole way of being changed into something more. It's a whole motivation. And it helps to prepare us for what we've heard in what Paul says here. Because in as much as Paul is talking about multiple things in those several verses, he's really talking about two theories of how you change. Where you find your resolve to become different from how you are now. And so we, what he's going to do for us in this passage is set up for us a contrast. A contrast between two ways, two motivations. And you hear him speak of it there in verse 7. He talks about the ministry carved in letters on stone and the ministry of the Spirit. Two ministries, two administrations, two ways of being, two kinds of motivations. The ministry, that which is carved on stone, what does that sound like? It sounds like the Ten Commandments. It sounds like that which is associated with Moses. It's the ministry carved on stones. The ministry of the Spirit. Goodness gracious, if you haven't been with us for the last four minutes, four months, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is typically associated with Jesus. It is through faith in him that the Spirit is given to us. And so he's setting up a contrast. The ministry that's written on stone, the ministry that is of the Spirit. And before, though, you hear about the contrast, you certainly first need to hear about what they share in common. Because unlike any other passage in the entire Old and New Testament, glory shows up no more often than it does in these 11 verses. You heard it probably 10 times. And some of those times refers to the glory of the law. The glory that is associated with the tablets of stone. The glory that is associated with what? The word, the will, and the wisdom of the Lord revealed in the law. 
That is its glory. It brings to us that which we know of him and what it means to walk in his way, what it means to follow him. And so you hear there in verse 7, carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. This is not an either or. There's glory in the ministry of the Spirit, but there's no glory in the ministry of the law. No, there's glory in both. There's glory in what God has revealed in his word, his will, and his wisdom that you can find Jesus quoting, Jesus explaining, Jesus clarifying. And for those of you like, who cares? I'll tell you why. Ed West wrote a short essay a few weeks ago called The New Theists. And he referred to a bunch of names and a bunch of thoughts of names and faces that we've introduced to you in recent months. Matthew B. Crawford, Ian Hersey Ali, Jonathan Haidt, Paul Kingsnorth, Louise Perry. Don't worry, you can look them all up. They're all on Google. What, some things distinguish them. Some people have no faith, no faith in the transcendent. Jonathan Haidt is one of them. Others kind of flip it. You hear people say, I'm spiritual but not religious. You know what Louise Perry said on a podcast recently? She says, I'm religious but not spiritual. Meaning, look, I have a respect for Jesus I, I don't have that quickening spirit in with me yet, but you know what she does? She takes her kids to church every week. Listen to that story. Paul Kingsnorth we've talked about, the Brit that lives in Northern Ireland, Ian Hersey Ali and Matthew B. Crawford, two people who in the last 12 months who had no regard for faith, no regard for God, and certainly no regard for Jesus are now considered brothers and sisters in the church. Ed West catalogs that kind of move and he's here to suggest to us what they all have in common, despite those distinctions, is this. They know one thing is true. Western civilization would not exist apart from what we find in the law and what we find in Jesus. Questions about dignity, questions about justice, questions about mercy, questions about forgiveness, questions about identity. We are heirs of that tradition. And we risk and, and, we, and we discard it to our peril. Such that Ed West says in the very last sentence of the, of the essay, I don't have a slide for it, sorry. Christianity is not some meditation method or get happy quick guide. It's a deeply strange idea which makes it triumph over the West all the more unlikely, dare one say miraculous. That's the glory of the law. Without it, there is no Western civilization. And you are the heirs and the beneficiaries of it. So what's the contrast? If that's the ministry written on stone and the ministry of the Spirit, if, if, if they share glory, well then what's the contrast between them? What is he doing? Well, of that ministry written on tablets, Paul doesn't mince words when he explains what that ministry really is. It's the ministry of death and it's the ministry of condemnation. Thanks, what? The ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. What does the law do? It does us a service. It reveals to us who God is. It reveals to us the holiness of God. It speaks to us what is the nature of righteousness. But when you think about what the law is able to do, the law, from a certain point of view, is kind of like an MRI or an X-ray or a blood test. It's a diagnostic tool. 
It is here to show you a pathology report on what is true of you. That when you hold it up against you, you begin to see you in a different light. You begin to see where the corruption is. You begin to sense how deep the affliction goes. You begin to realize how incapable you are of actually fulfilling the template he gives to you for life. It's what the law does. It reflects to you that reality. If you just look at the Ten Commandments, you want to talk about Moses and the tablets of stone? Look, you can fulfill commandments two through nine without even really believing in God. That's what some of our friends there in that list of, of people, they, they respect the idea of honoring your father and mother and not stealing and not murdering and not bearing false witness. You can do all of that and not think that there is any grandfather in the sky or any you know, spaghetti monster in the sky. You can do all of that because you realize it has social utility. It helps you out. It is a benefit to your community to abide by those laws. God, maybe he's there. Don't care. I know this stuff works. I'll go with it. You can do that. But when you get to church, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, hmm. Yeah, that's harder. And you know what? I really do have more gods. I have other gods besides you. And then when you get to commandment 10, you shall not covet. You shall not desire something of greater value than its true value. <laughs> Good luck. You're talking about a desire of the heart that if only there were a switch, if only I could not covet or desire something more than it's really worth. Friends, hold the law up to your own heart. Hold the law up to your own story and you realize, yeah, at best it's a diagnostic tool. Now that's an anachronistic way of putting it. What does Paul say of it elsewhere in Galatians or in Colossians? The law was our tutor. What does a tutor do? Well, it teaches you a lot of stuff. Queen Elizabeth, she was tutored. History, geography, culture, all of that. She was tutored. A tutor can instruct you in any number of things, but can it internalize in you that which you're learning such that you really love it and embrace it? No. The contrast between the ministry of the tablets, the, the law written on tablets of stone and the ministry of the spirit is that the ministry of the law cannot produce in you what it asks of you. It can instruct you in any number of ways, but it can't drive it into your heart. So what does the Spirit do? Where the law is able to show you, to point to you, the ministry of the Spirit is able to produce in you what the law asks of you. That is its greater glory. That is the contrast that Paul was making in part. The Spirit is able to produce in you the way of Jesus in you. Look, anybody's conversion is a miracle. You don't convince yourself into thinking that Jesus is Lord. You are persuaded of that. And maybe that persuasion comes from multiplicity of voices, from mama and daddy to friend in college to friend in the workplace to dude in the, on, the, on the street, whatever it might be. God uses multiple voices and multiple experiences. But it, when it comes to it lighting in you such that you go, I think I am accountable to him and I think I need from him what is beautiful from him, that's a work of the Spirit. And the ministry of the Spirit that not only persuades you of the truth of Jesus is the same ministry of the Spirit that helps to build into you and mature in you that which is true of Jesus. That's the ministry of the Spirit. That's what it produces, righteousness. 
It's greater glory lies in that. It's greater glory lies in what he says there later in verse 10 and 11. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. A lot of words, here's the point. The law had its time. The law had its place. The law has its purpose. But now something has come on the scene that was actually anticipated in the Old Testament that puts that glory to shame. And I'll show you a picture of just what I mean by that. The ministry of the Spirit was always intended to have a permanent purpose. Such that what you read in Ezekiel 36, you realize it's not like God changed his mind. It's not like the Lord said, hmm, well, that didn't work. Uh, let's, let's move this chess piece. How about the ministry of the Spirit? Let's do that. No. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, the prophet says. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put with you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That was the plan. And that is the plan that comes to fulfillment in Jesus. And that's what sets the ministry of the Spirit apart from the ministry written on tablets. There is glory in the word, wisdom, and will of God as we see on those tablets. But there is a glory that's even greater in the grace of his Son. So if I might sort of say, you, you hear language there that makes it sound like God, you know, the law is done. We're not, we don't listen to the law anymore. And then you read Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to actually fulfill it. And then he begins to explain how deep the law intends for us to follow the heart of God and how much we need something more than just our reading of the law in order to get there. So how shall we compare it? Uh, here's a picture of the sun uh, in relationship to Beetlejuice. Not Michael Keaton, the other star. Uh, that's the sun. You can barely see it. And then there's Beetlejuice. It's the glory that surpasses it. Uh, you think the sun is bright. Imagine being near Beetlejuice. Oh my. You will need more than sunglasses. The glory of the Spirit eclipses the glory that we find in that which is written on tablets of stone. And all that is just deep, thick theology that maybe only matters to me. I don't know. Why does it matter? Why should you care? And it's why we appeal to Loki. I could have done this for you, Father. For you. For all of us. What, what is he saying implicitly in a moment like that? I, I want to feel okay. I want to feel like I'm right with you. I want to feel like I'm right with the universe. That was his standard. I want to feel right. I want to feel grounded. I don't want to feel adrift. I don't want to feel doomed. Nobody wants to feel any of that. Every one of you has your own theory about how you do not want to feel adrift and full of doom today. I know, it's work. If you look to any standard of being, if you look to any benchmark that says, I have to achieve this in order to be okay, in order to be accepted, then you have chosen a way and a belief that your ability to justify your own existence is within your own power. And it may have nothing to do with the Old Testament law. It may have nothing to do with Jesus. 
any standard you create for yourself, if you succeed it, you risk feeling rather big, inflated, egoist. And if you fail it, you fall into despair. I mean, literally, Loki lets go of his father and falls into an abyss of despair there in the multiverse. Because he made proving his worth to his father as the way to obtain his father's approval. And you and I do that in a variety of ways. It is our attempt to justify our own existence, and that's Loki's move. Proving yourself to be approved, that's a way we live. And a lot of times we don't even know we're doing it. You're trying to prove something in order to be approved. And that is what Paul is grieving about his Jewish brethren. They are looking to the law with an appropriate form of respect, but from a misguided sense of what it is for and what they're able to do in view of it. And so Paul talks about this veil. You heard it in our passage. You heard it in the Old Testament reading. What's the veil about? It's, it, 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 the, Paul's using it in two ways. The veil was, first of all, as you heard there in the Old Testament reading, Moses would talk with the Lord, and he would come out, and he was shining, and everybody's like, ah, run! And so like, here, veil over the face. Everything's fine, honey. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. Everything's, shh. He put a veil over his face because his, sun sh his face shone because he'd been in the presence of God. That's one way in which veil was being used here, but Paul was using it a second way. The veil obscured Israel from seeing the glory of God from Moses' face in a way that wouldn't make them frightened. But there's also a sense in which the veil over their own face, whenever they read the Old Covenant, they refuse to see the full glory of God in the ministry of the Spirit. It's kind of like, it's like I, I can barely see it. It's there. It's, I, no. It, and, and he's using the word veil there over Israel's face in that second sense as a refusal to believe that God has moved in the person of Jesus to give us his spirit to see the even greater glory. And that veil lies over their face. And they just won't see it. I won't see it. Because they have said to themselves, I know the law. I know what God asks me of the law. And I will follow that law. And I will justify my existence before the Lord in that way. And that's Paul's grief. Because Paul has been just like that. He doesn't look down on them. He grieves with them because he knows their move. I'm doing this for you, Lord of Israel, for you, for all of us. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, look, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He knows that move. He sees that law. He tries to follow it, that it might produce in him what it asks of him. And he realizes, I'm never going to get there. But whatever gain I had, I counted that as loss for the sake of Jesus. In Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee walks into the temple, begins to worship the Lord and saying, I'm glad I'm not like those other people. I'm glad I do everything you say. And the tax collector, he won't even come into the temple court at all. He just kind of looks down and, he, and he, he's, he puts his head down and he says, 
have mercy, me, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says in that parable, you know who went home justified before the Lord? The tax collector. Because it's the tax collector that finally sees the true nature of his own heart, which is also the nature of the Pharisee. When you get that you are worse than you think, you have made progress. Wow. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. When you realize that the devil is in too deep, that the corruption works in you in ways that you had no bargaining, imagination, you've actually made progress. When you realize, I can read all 613 laws in the Old Testament, and even if I accomplished many of them, I know it's in my heart. And here's the thing. You don't have to have an interest in any of that. You can just set up a standard for yourself, what my kids will be like, what my 401k will say, uh, whatever accomplishments might be on my wall, how good the Christmas light display I did in my front yard. You know, I saw that Christmas vacation again. Ugh. You create a standard for yourself, and if you fail it, you are nothing. And if you succeed in it, you feel a little too good about yourself. What is at work here is a profound thing in all of us that is hard to shake. It is a motivation that Loki represents that is cultivated in your culture. You have no idea how many inputs you receive from birth to whatever age you are that says, if you will just do this, you will be good. And therefore, you're out to prove something so that you can know that you're good. Well, if that's not what the Lord asks of us, what's the alternative? Because I don't know any other way. I've been given a lot of expectations. I've been given a lot of metrics by which to measure myself. And, you know, I'm just sort of, that's my way of thinking. What's wrong with that? What's the alternative? I'm going to tell you what the alternative is. It's the difference between two things. Proving versus pleasing. Proving yourself to gain his approval or pleasing the Lord that you might feel his pleasure. Those two things might, in your mind, feel utterly identical, synonymous. I'm here to suggest to you they could not be more different. What's the difference? If you're trying to prove something, you will fall into despair when you fail. And when you're trying to prove something, you really don't care what God wants. You, just, or you really don't care about the Lord. You just care about maybe what will happen to you if you don't do what he says. And then you are more fearful of the consequences of your actions than about God either. And I guarantee you, if you are only worried about the consequences of not following his will, it is only a matter of time before you resent God for giving you his commands. Ask any parent. It is one thing to respect what the Lord asks of us, it's another thing to say, I'll comply begrudgingly, and if I can't, I'll just resent you because of what you told me. That's trying to prove something. What does it mean to please the Lord? To seek his pleasure? You seek to do his will because you love who he is, because of what he's done for you. And when you fail at that, 
There's grief, but not despair. Grief that becomes the ground and the grist for repentance and of finding the new resolve to walk in his way. That's the difference between proving and pleasing. What does that look like? I told you Loki was going to help. He's going to help once more. In a very different setting, Loki is in a storyline in which there's something called the multiverse, which there are multiple timelines that go in all sorts of different ways. And there is a sinister force that is out to destroy the multiverse. And Loki is wondering to himself, how might we rescue the multiverse? And he tries to find any number of ways that he might imagine the way that that multiverse might be rescued. And here, towards the very end of his narrative arc, something happens that I promise I will elucidate for you even on the other end of it. What are you going to do? Finish what I started. Which is? Claim my throne. You want to be king? I don't want to be. I was born to be. No, no, but king of what exactly? Okay, so let's get into it. The man who would be king. Baby, stop. Stop, we just started. We gotta keep going. No, 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 no. I, I know what this is. What is it? You want to know what makes Loki tick? Yes. You want to know why I do what I do? Why I have so much range? Yeah. You're gonna make notes and, and then you're gonna click that button on that machine and then you're gonna play out scenes from my whole life, how it's all meant to be. Past, present, future, burden of a glorious purpose. My life was a waste of time. If. If. There's a hope that you can replace that thing. With something better. What are you doing? Open the door. Loki. I know what I want. I know what kind of god I need to be. For you. For all of us. And what Loki does right after that is that he, in a sense, lays down his life for his friends. He steps out into danger, risking himself, his existence, to gather up all the threads of time and to renew them with life. And as he does so, he ascends and sits on a throne. And the very last scene of the whole narrative arc is of him holding that together with a tear in his eye because he has had to sacrifice his friendships in order to rescue them from their destruction. That sounds familiar. I wonder where that storyline might have come from, implicitly. He knows what kind of God he must be, and now he's about to do something for you, for all of us. Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus forsakes equality with God, what divinity deserves, 
to live above the fray, but he enters into our existence, he enters into our suffering, he sympathizes with our weakness, and he gathers up the threads of time, and he rescues us from our own destruction, and then ascends a throne, and every knee should bow, because he is a worthy king. Loki is doing us a favor, man. Not only in showing us a transformation from being so selfish and self-oriented to a place where he's not out to win his father's approval anymore, he's persuaded of something that is already true so that he can lay down his life for his friends. That is both a change in him, but also a picture of Jesus. Thank you, Marvel. When somebody wrote an essay named Ian Olson about what, Luther, what Loki is doing there, he says this. Loki depicts what freedom truly is, the ability to accept the burden that arises from love's demand and deny the self when love cries out what must be done. Where does that come from? What does it mean to live in that way? Freed to live that way. C.S. Lewis, in that famous essay on the weight of glory upon which we have depended a great deal in these last five weeks, glory is this. It means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. You have sought the acceptance and acknowledgement from any number of people, and you have, been, you have grown in those moments. I have grown in moments from people speaking a timely word of great moment to me. I have grown in that. But what is that a picture of? It is a hint. It is a hint of an acknowledgement that we most deeply long for. Some of you saw Barbie in the last six months. And after Barbie has walked her lament about all of these contradictory, difficult expectations that are laid on women, but she's just trying to figure out, what do I aspire to as a woman? There's a moment in which she sits down with a 90-year-old woman. And that woman reassures her of something that is true and substantive of her to keep going. You're doing fine. And when Greta Gerwig... The director of that film, I read another essay uh, in the New York Times uh, yesterday about her kind of machinations and her thinking about the whole thing. She, she was very candid when she said this about that scene. The idea of a loving God who's a mother, a grandmother, who looks at you and says, honey, you're doing okay, is something I feel like I need and I wanted to give to other people a transaction of grace. If I cut that scene, I don't know why I'm making this movie. And if I don't have that scene, I don't know what it is or what I've done. She knows you and I need someone to look into our eyes and give us a transaction of grace. But I need maybe not just your voice. I need a deeper voice. I need a voice that will not change and that will reassure me of something than just my particular moment, but of something that lasts for eternity. Friends, that's the weight of glory. And when I hear that word, something is different. And it makes me want to be different. And what I think C.S. Lewis is doing and what Greta Gerwig is doing in that moment, ha, funny thing, Greta Gerwig's about to do a couple movies about Narnia. So, in the words of John Calvin, fingers crossed. You got that, right? I think C.S. Lewis and Greta Gerwig are preparing for us. What is Paul, what's his point? Here's the point. And here's what you need to think about for 2024, things that you can't forget. One, do not forget that you are burdened with glorious purpose. But do not confuse the nature of that burden. What is the burden of your glorious purpose? It's what he says in the last two verses. 
The Lord is the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is freedom, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are what? Being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is your glorious purpose? To become more like the Son in whom God has the fullness of God dwells. That's your glorious purpose. Whatever else you're aspiring to, whatever other goals you have for this year, goals that are good for change, your weight, your time, your money, whatever it might be, fine, do those things. I commend them unto you, but don't forget your glorious purpose. You are burdened with glorious purpose to be conformed, to be transformed into the image of his beloved son. Don't forget that. But at the same time, you're not forgetting that. Also, don't confuse the nature of the burden. You are not here to prove something to him. Not to get his approval. You already have it. Jesus bought it for you. He took the threads of your time, your story, bundled them up, renewed them, and ascended a throne. That's the gospel. The nature of the burden is this. To live to please him. To feel his pleasure to walk in his way, and to learn to delight in that. What C.S. Lewis says towards the end of that famous sermon called The Weight of Glory is this. He says it rather starkly. How we think of God is of no importance except in so far as it related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him and shall appear and shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. And that's why we look to Jesus. Because he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You got nothing to prove to me. Just live for my pleasure. Use your Sabbath, friends. Whether or not revelry is in order for you this evening, may I commend to you maybe for 30 minutes. You have 30 minutes today. Grab your journals. Here's my TVA journal. And write down what are the things you're thankful for from this year. What are the things that are losses? And acknowledge them as losses. Regrets, griefs, I got mine. But write down those regrets with the understanding that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as you dream what 2024 might be of the things that you hope would be different, I would ask whatever you might do at the bottom of that page, write one thing, one prayer that has precedent in Exodus 33 and it's Moses saying, show me your glory. I don't know what form that will take. It may not even be exciting but it may be make you different. Let's pray. Help us to see your glory that we might be changed more into the glory of your son. Knowing the difference between trying to prove something to you, which we can't, 
and instead trying to please you with what we have and who we are because of what your spirit does in us. Thank you for what we've had this year, sir, even if we can only think of it with tears. Help us to hope in what is before us. Show us your glory. Your goodness will be enough. Amen.